The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week, Katie Balls reads her politics column on Humza Youssef, or the union's best hope, as she says. Lisa Hazeldine reads her interview with Georgia's exiled former defence minister, who discusses everything from Putin to poisonings. And Graham Thompson asks whether supergroups are really that super. Up first... Katie Balls. After the narrow victory of the Brexit campaign in 2016, it was often said that the result would lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom. Just 38% of Scots voted for Brexit, so Nicola Sturgeon argued that Scotland was being taken out of the EU against its will, necessitating a second Scottish independence referendum. And in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party blocked the formation of a new power-sharing administration last year in protest at the Westminster government's approach to the Brexit protocol. Now things look very different. DUP MPs may have voted against the Windsor framework, but polls suggest that Rishi Sunak's renegotiated Brexit deal is supported by most Northern Irish voters. Just 17% oppose it. Unionist politicians will be under pressure to return to power sharing in the coming months as trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain becomes easier. Yet the factor that is giving both Labour and the Tories the biggest cause for optimism about the future of the Union is the election of Himza Youssef as the new First Minister of Scotland. We only call him by his full name, Himza Useless, explains a Labour figure. Conservatives agree. It's the perfect result, says a senior government source. Yousef's victory is slim, just 52% of the vote. But instead of trying to unite his party, he offered Kate Forbes a big demotion, which she refused, instead of resigning from government. The SNP looked steeply split. It's marvellous, says the senior minister. In the past, nationalists have tended to show a unity that Scots envied. Alex Sam was a clear favourite in 2004, and Sturgeon's candidacy in 2014 was uncontested. Now the nationalist movement is fractured. Salmond leads Alba, his own party, and the Scottish electorate has been treated to five weeks of infighting between Youssef, Forbes and Ash Reagan, in which their differences have been on full display. Opposition SMPs joke they don't even need to bother coming up with their own Youssef attack lines. They can just recite Forbes' words from the debates. You were a transport minister and the trains were never on time. When you were just a secretary, the police were strained to breaking point. As health minister, we got record high waiting times. What makes you think you could do a better job as First Minister? Her summation of his weaknesses is so popular among unionists that some joke about setting it as their phone ringtone. In Westminster, SNP politicians preparing for an election next year watch in dismay. He's made his first mistake less than 24 hours in, says one party supporter of the loss of Forbes. 48% of the party don't back him. Eustace's blunder has gone down like a cup of cold sick with the members. Ivan McKee has also quit as business minister after being offered a job he saw as a demotion. These resignations are an early indication that Yusuf, insecure and easily wounded, plans to continue Sturgeon's style of governing, isolating those who criticise him. 
There's been another recent party leader who did precisely this after winning an election, Liz Truss, who sent Sunak and his supporters to political Siberia. When her premiership ran into trouble, she found that a large part of her party was in no mood to help her. Sunak stayed quiet, went to the backbenches and bided his time. He did not have to wait long. It's not impossible that Forbes is in a similar position. Humza has inherited a bad hand and he is a lot less competent than Nicholas, says one Tory source. It will be all downhill from here. Some Labour politicians would have preferred Forbes to have won the leadership race on the basis that her conservative views on social issues and the economy might have allowed them to caricature her as a tartan Tory. Kate was better for us for 2024. She moves the party right, says one figure. Yousef is better for 2026, the date of the next Scottish Parliament election. He won't improve things in the long term. Yousef will instead hug the Scottish Greens close and may even try to revive the SNP's strikingly unpopular reform for gender self-ID. Labour still plans to make gains from the SNP of at least 10 seats in the general election. At a gathering last weekend in London, all parliamentary candidates were invited for a pep talk on preparing for the election. Those senior figures stressed there was a long way to go and many voters would not make up their minds until the last minute. For the Tories, Forbes was viewed by ministers as a far trickier opponent who could even woo some Scottish Tory voters. Sturgeon was a major recruiting sergeant for unionists. They would come out to vote just to stop her. The view in number 10 is that Yusuf, the Sturgeon continuity candidate, will also energise core Tory voters. Sunak's strategy is to kill with kindness, starving a party that feeds on grievance. Downing Street made sure to arrange a call for Yousaf's first day and plans to be proactive in reaching out, so the nationalists cannot claim they are being ignored by Westminster. At the start of the year, when Sunak met Sturgeon for an informal and private working dinner near Inverness, the meeting was very cordial, according to those in the room. Whereas Sunak's predecessors would often just say they would get back to Sturgeon on various points and then fail to do so, Sunak proved more challenging, clashing with her on nurses' pay and budget spending. The real goal for all unionists is stopping Scottish independence. A strong union helps both the Tories and Labour. If support for independence is low, Keir Starmer can avoid questions about what happens if he should fall short of a majority in the next general election and have to rely on SNP votes to govern. While the Tories can foster a sense that the government is working rather than staggering from crisis to crisis. Yousaf's biggest problem is not his poor track record in government, but the fact he has no levers left to pull to achieve his party's founding aim. His demands for an official referendum will simply be rejected by number 10. In the leadership contest, both Forbes and Yousaf tried to temper hopes of independence any time soon. Unionists now have a golden opportunity to advance their cause in the coming year. That was Katie Balls. Next, Lisa Hazeldine. David Kizarashvili knows better than most what standing up to Russia entails. He helped to overthrow the Kremlin-aligned Georgian government during the 2003 Rose Revolution. Then he served as Georgia's defence minister for two years, including when Russia invaded in 2008. He eventually fled to London in 2012 when the Kremlin-backed Georgian Dream government accused him of embezzling $5.2 million in state funds. Seven criminal charges were levelled against him, including extortion and money laundering. None were upheld in court until two years ago when the country's Supreme Court overturned the embezzlement acquittal, sentencing him in absentia to ten years in prison. When we meet in the spectators' offices, Kizarashvili, who owns Georgia's pro-democracy television channel Formula TV, insists the charges are trumped up, the result of a politically motivated campaign against him. 
Courts in both Britain and France have refused requests from Georgia to extradite him. The ridiculous thing is that the Supreme Court judge who tried my case was the general prosecutor when the prosecutor's office appealed my acquittal in 2018. It was the same person sitting on both trials, Kizarashvili says. Without calling my defence, in a few hours they decided I was guilty. Kizarashvili, 44, says that his decision to meet me is not without risk. A week before our interview, Georgia's former president, Mikhail Saakashvili, who is serving six years for abuse of power, which he denies, passed a note to journalists from his prison hospital bed claiming he had been poisoned. Vladimir Putin said at the time of the Georgian war that he will go after him, and that is what we're seeing now. Saakashvili was referred to in a recent US State Department report as a political prisoner. Two-thirds of the cabinet that served under him are in exile or living under the threat of jail time. This week, Norway gave Saakashvili the Sura Lindebrecher Award for his work promoting human rights and democracy, which was dismissed by Georgia's Prime Minister, Irakli Garibashvili, as an insult. Kizarashvili claims that even in London he is not free from Russian intimidation. I spotted strangers taking photos of me meeting people, he says, and then somehow they appear on the TV channel Imedi, which is the Georgian pro-government, pro-Russian TV channel in Georgia. They show my meetings with my ex-colleagues or with business partners. It happens every few weeks, he shrugs. It's become part of life. Part of the reason for this intimidation, Kizarashvili says, is his work on Formula TV. The station has been targeted since it was launched in 2020, but in the past few months the government has upped the ante. Kizarashvili expects the channel to be shut down imminently. The US State Department report notes that media watchdogs believe the state's lawsuit against Kizarashvili is aimed at seizing the government-critical television station. When I ask if he's concerned about meeting a similar fate to that of his old boss, or of Alexander Litvinenko or Yulia and Sergei Skripal, he replies, It's uncomfortable for sure. Friends and family have even been pushing him to get bodyguards. I'm against it. I don't like the idea, he says. Questions have been raised over Saakashvili's claim that he was poisoned. But Kizarashvili, who affectionately refers to Saakashvili as Misha, says what happened is not, as the Georgian government claims, the result of natural illness. On multiple occasions, Putin promised that he would punish Misha. Now he's doing it with the hands of the Georgian government. It's all according to this Kremlin playbook, if you like. But that's how they treat their enemies and those they don't like. Kizarashvili says tests recently performed in the United States on samples of Saakashvili's hair and nails indicate poisoning. Abnormal levels of heavy metals were found in his system. Politico, too, said that medical reports reveal traces of mercury and arsenic in Saakashvili's hair and nails, and lacerations throughout his body. Last month, there were violent protests across Georgia over the government's attempt to pass two foreign influence laws. These laws would have required any organisation which received more than 20% of its funding from abroad to register as a foreign agent. The laws would have affected the freedom of the press and NGOs. After being criticised for Russian-style threats to free expression, Georgian Dream dropped the legislation. But Kizarashvili doesn't believe the government will stop there. He suspects crackdowns on civil society are coming. Georgia is becoming more and more pro-Russian every week. Nowadays, I'd call it a proxy of the Russian state. It would have been difficult calling it that maybe a couple of years ago, but not from what I see now. The government are getting their instructions from officials in Moscow. The German Foreign Minister, Annalena Baerbock, last week accused Russia of trying to destabilise Georgia and Moldova because of the country's decision to follow the European path, and said that this was intensifying because of the Ukraine war. 
Britain has also pledged half a million pounds to help shore up Georgia's security against Russian interference ahead of the country's election next year. It's getting to the point where everyone should be speaking up and attract as much attention as possible. Georgia needs help from the West, says Kizrashvili. Russia continues to occupy the Georgian territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which were established as effective Russian territory during the 2008 war. There are reports that those territories might hold referendums on joining Russia officially. Soldiers from the region are also being sent to fight for Russia in Ukraine. Kizrashvili has visited Kiev at least six times since the war broke out, each trip lasting several weeks. He returned from his latest visit the day before we met. He stresses that his trips are for humanitarian purposes and gets defensive when pressed for details. What details are you interested in? He says coyly when I ask. There was lengthy travel involved because you have to drive all the way from the Polish border, which is about seven or eight hours. This is as much as he'll give. It doesn't seem far-fetched, perhaps, to imagine that a former defence minister with first-hand experience of Russian military aggression and a strategic knowledge of how to defend a country against Putin could have found a receptive audience amongst Ukraine's wartime politicians. Shortly after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Georgia applied for EU membership along with Moldova. That application now hangs in the balance, in part due to the government's attempts to repress free speech. Kizarashvili is very doubtful the current government will fulfil the conditions set by the EU. Nevertheless, he hopes that Georgians will have a future in the EU. Georgians see themselves as, and they are, European people. Georgia is a European country, he says. Kizarashvili will only be able to return to Georgia if there's a change of regime and an end to the madness that he and many of his former colleagues have been subject to. He hasn't given up yet. I hope one day I'll be able to go back and see my family, friends, and the city where I was born and grew up, he says. And that was Lisa Hazeldine. Finally, Graham Thompson. Recently in these pages, ruminating on the ghastly Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I wrote that music does not conform to any equation. I should have added, except, of course, for the occasions when it does. One tried and true formulation is that supergroups those bespoke vehicles bringing together artists best known either for working alone or within other bands, tend to add up to considerably less than the sum of their parts. We could blame Eric Clapton. Indeed, it seems remiss not to. Blind Faith, a fatally untidy union of Clapton, ex-Cream, Stevie Winwood, ex-Traffic, and Ginger Baker, exhausting, started the whole thing off in 1968, and not in a good way. Blind Faith simply felt like a poor fit, under-rehearsed, musically non-sympatico, a rash idea whose time hadn't come. Each era has its own versions. Few linger long in the memory. Can you whistle anything by the power station, the 1980s rock band comprised of Robert Palmer and members of Chic and Duran Duran? Of course you can't. Generally, supergroups are enthralled to the idea of their own existence, the music trails sluggishly behind. Most are a mere indulgence, which is forgivable. Much worse is when everybody involved sublimates their best selves to some polite, compromised vision of the collective. Others are nakedly needy. X needs Y to lend legitimacy to some new artistic fancy. Only a handful forge a genuinely distinct creative identity. Crosby, Stills and Nash transcended the significant groups, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield and the Hollies respectively that their members left behind. The Good, the Bad and the Queen, Damon Albarn with The Clash's Paul Simonon and late ace Afrobeat drummer Tony Allen did a decent enough job. 
though it was clear Alburn was always running the show. In the 1990s, Yorda's Bernard Summer and the Smith Johnny Marr formed Electronic and succeeded in maintaining some of the common denominators connecting two utterly distinct bands while sounding like neither, creating something that felt both familiar and fresh. And that is the point of such collaborations, one hopes, to drag artists out of their respective comfort zones and into new territory, while retaining the sense that nobody is selling themselves either out or short. Which brings us to Boy Genius, an indie supergroup comprising Phoebe Bridges, Lucy Dacus and Julian Baker. None of them are household names exactly, though Bridges is now a pretty big deal. Yet these three 20-something women wield enormous cultural influence amongst a fan base for whom they articulate the age's key themes. Sexual fluidity, fragile mental health, identity confusion, intense friendship. Their partnership is the Gen Z equivalent of Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt getting together in the 1980s. Or more recently, Katie Lang, Nico Case and Laura Veers collaborating. This summer in the UK, Boy Genius will play two huge outdoor shows. This is their first album, following an EP in 2018. The brief, charming opening track, Without You, Without Them, sung a cappella and seemingly recorded around the kitchen table, is a red herring for the mix of orthodox indie rock and sad ballads that follows. Lyrically, however, it contains a mission statement. I want you to hear my story and be a part of it. The blurb around the band and the record is that they are logical extensions of the trio's close friendships. The songs they wrote together are conversations, not with the listener, but with each other. In We're In Love, Dacus goes to karaoke to sing the song you wrote about me. Meta much? Leonard Cohen reads like an off-the-cuff email mistakenly cc'd to all contacts, rather than the two members of the group to which it pertains. By writing songs for and about each other, Boy Genius delight a core fan base deeply invested in their personality, while simultaneously reinforcing their separateness. It's not hard to spot the guiding hand behind each song. Bridgers does super sad, super specific, woozy balladry, like Emily I'm Sorry, or Letter to an Old Poet, while Not Strong Enough recalls her breakout hit Motion Sickness. Dacus's coolly expressed emotional excavations plug into a pop sensibility on True Blue before turning devastatingly direct on We're in Love. Baker offers winning extremes from the crunching $20 to the pretty cool about it that sounds a little like Simon and Garfunkel. It means the record pleases while doing the opposite of what it might ideally have set out to do. There are good songs, beautiful ones even, killer harmonies and noisy thrills, but only the loose, lurching Satanist feels as though it could never have existed had the trio not made a record together. There is no dominant boy genius gene, just three interesting artists being interesting in a slightly different context. Nice for them, clearly, and nice enough for us, but that supergroup equation still holds. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. <laughs>